Uh, we're going to be in First Peter 2, verses 18 through 25 this morning as we uh, continue on in our study of First Peter, uh, looking specifically today at suffering well in the workplace, suffering well in the workplace. Uh, there's, there's a lot of new faces I've noticed this morning, so good to have you, good to see you. Uh, my name is Pastor Allen. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you're joining us uh, online as well, we're glad to have you worshiping with us that way. Uh, I'm going to read the passage and then pray, and then we'll get to work this morning. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 18. Peter says the following, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. A key verse here, verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Fathers, we look at your word this morning, we know your word is true. We know that, that your word gives us pure truth, unlike the, the half-truths we hear all week. Would you open our eyes, Lord, that we would see? Would you open our ears that we would hear, would you help us to avoid the temptation of, of changing your word to fit our lives, but rather would we be changed by your spirit, more and more conformed to the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, it's a, Peter's a fiery guy, and, and he, he doesn't hold back in this passage. He's, he's pretty, uh, we know him as a compassionate guy as it is, and, and he, uh, he gives us really what's a simple passage to teach. This is not a a whole lot of complexity here, but, but it's much harder to put this into practice than it is to just read it in the Bible here. Uh, so we're going to spend some time even looking at how we put this into practice. But before we get too far, I want to just spend just a moment on this, this first word here. Uh, in the ESV and the NASB, it might say servants. Uh, in the NIV and a few other translations, it'll use the word slaves. And so we want to stop before we get too far. We want to ask a question. Who is Peter talking to, and, and what specific life circumstance are they in? So we want to think about what that word would mean, especially in the first century context. Uh, the word that I expected to see, I think that Dave expected to see when we looked at the passage in Greek, you expect to see the word uh, doulos, which is a slavery. It's someone who is, is truly the property of somebody else. And that's, uh, interestingly enough, not the word that Peter goes with. He goes with this this uh, more rare form of a word, it's, it's oiketes. You might have heard of a oikos, a fellowship. Uh, you might have heard of oikia or ikea, talking about a household. That word is, it's more than just a place to buy frustratingly difficult to put together furniture. It's talking about your household, okay? And so what Peter's talking about is, is people who work for someone within a household. And in the first century, this is most jobs, you usually had a patron or a household or somebody that you were under the care of while you were employed, and you were employed by them. 
Uh, so you can think of uh, doctors, farmhands, uh, physicians like Luke probably were under the employment of some sort of household. Paul probably, in a way, became his patron as he traveled with him. And so I bring all this up because the scriptures are very clear that the institute of slavery is wrong. It's sinful. Nowhere in scripture does it condone slavery. It is not something to be a part of the Christian life. But this passage is, is not talking about what we do about slavery. It's speaking about what we do as Christians who are employed in somebody's service. Does that make sense? What, what Peter's expecting is that, that most of us are employed by somebody and that while we go to work, we will, as Christians, face persecution or suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. He assumes that that's true for his first century audience, and I think we can assume that that's true for some of us today. And so what we want to do today is, is follow Peter's line of thought and, and look at the New Testament as a whole when it comes specifically to suffering for the name of Christ in the workplace. And we'll look at two points, just two points today. Uh, Christ, our suffering Savior, that's the example set before us, and then the clarifications to our calling, that's the hope that propels us. So Christ, our suffering Savior, and clarifications to our calling. First, Christ, our suffering Savior. We saw this key verse in verse 21. It says, for to this, that is to unjust suffering in the workplace, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. I love the way the, the New Living Translation takes it. It says, God called you to do good even if it means suffering. Just like Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. Christ, our suffering Savior, is our example. And so suffering specifically, and and especially in the workplace, and because we are Christians, is a very real part of being disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. It's a guarantee. It's, it's bad news, but that's, that's the thing that's before us. The good news, however, is that, that Jesus also suffered, and in so doing, he left us an example of how to suffer well. And Peter draws out three ways here. You have them in your bulletin, and, and how he set the example for us. He suffered selflessly, that is, he suffered for us. He suffered righteously, that is, he did what was right even while suffering. And he suffered trustingly. He trusted God the Father even while in the midst of terrible suffering. Selflessly, righteously, trustingly. So first we see that Christ suffered selflessly. He suffered for us, and therefore at times we are called to suffer for his name. Peter says in verse 21 of our passage, Christ suffered for us. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Which is why Peter says at the beginning of this passage in verse 20, what credit is it if when you are sin and, and beaten for it you endure? What if, if when you do good and suffer you endure? Then this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is a gift to God. Our ability to endure, to continue to do good things even while we suffer for Christ's name is a gift to God. Christ suffered for us and so we now at times suffer for his name. Perhaps the the best example I've ever come across of someone who 
suffered in the workplace for the name of Christ is, is a man in Albania that I once met. I met him seven years ago. Uh, his name is, is Christian Katori. Uh, and Albania is this little country just north of Greece and across the water from Italy. It's where every bad guy in every movie, there's always an Albanian, if you pay attention. There's always one from, and I feel bad. They're the sweetest people. Somehow they've always got a bad guy in the movies. Uh, but I was over there and, and helping some pastors, and they told me, you have to meet this guy who's planting six churches at one time. And I thought, that's, that's like trying to find a unicorn. We're not going to find the, the guy planting six churches. They said he's, he's planting six churches at the same time while working a full-time job. And, of course, I, I wanted to, to meet this guy. Uh, and so they took me into the mountains where there's just these villages scattered about, and, and we went to a market, kind of like our farmer's markets here. And there's this guy, Christian, he's got a, a minivan, and it's, he's been converted into kind of a, a market booth where he's, he's selling, of all things, like jewelry and perfumes, women's stuff. And in that culture, it's, as a man, it's shameful to go purchase uh, uh, something for your wife, and so you get your sister, and, and you have her go up and purchase the jewelry or the perfume. You know, God forbid someone should see a man purchase perfume. And so they, they would send the ladies up to make the purchases for their wives or sisters. Uh, and while that's going on, and you watch Christian, his wife is working the booth, and then he's having all these very animated conversations with these guys. And what he's doing is he's telling them the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so while he's working his booth, he's proclaiming the gospel to the people of that village. And he does this all day, and then in the evening, he closes up the van, goes around the corner, out into a field, sometimes up into a loft, and and he preaches to anybody who showed interest during the day. And as people give their lives to Christ, as people profess faith, that a church is formed right there. And after the sermon, he disciples people. He spends time with the congregation. He trains up the elders and deacons. And slowly but surely, a church is formed in that village. And if that was the Monday village, he would go home that night. Tuesday morning, he'd be in the next market in the next village. And he'd do the same thing. He'd sell and proclaim the gospel and then preach in the evening disciple the church, train up elders. He'd go to bed late. He'd get some sleep with his wife. And early the next morning, Wednesday morning, he'd be at the next market. And he had just a little circuit. Monday, he's back at that original Monday village doing the same thing, strengthening the church. Tuesday, he's back at the Tuesday village. And he's just going six days a week. On Sundays, he takes a day off and prepares his sermon for the next six churches that he's pastoring the next week. And, and I was blown away just talking to this guy and so how long have you been doing this? He'd been doing it for five years at that time. We say, how many churches has, have been planted? And, and he just pulls up a map and he says, I don't know. And he's just showing us all these dots all over the place, all over Albanian mountains where he's been planting churches. It was, it was somewhere around 25 to 30 churches in five years while working full time. I said, well, how do you know when a church is established, when it's time for you to move on? He said, well, I, I just get forced out. So what do you mean you get forced out? He said, well, the, the Muslims, see, Albania is majority Muslim. He said, the Muslims, they tend to figure out after a while what's going on. And so the Muslims, maybe in the Tuesday village, they will come to my house Monday night and they'll slash the tires on my van so that I can't get into the village Tuesday to, to sell my goods and to preach the gospel. I said, that's, that's got to be difficult. He said, no, that's the best part. He said, because when we suffer for Christ, Christ builds his church. 
He said, what I do on those days is my wife and I, we, we gather up our goods and we get on a bus or, or we just start walking down the road to that village. And then people say, why are you on this bus with a bunch of perfume? Or why are you walking down the road with arms full of jewelry? Have you robbed something? He says, no, I tell them I'm going to the town. And they say, why don't you get a van? He says, because I have a van, but the Muslims slash my tires. And they say, why would the Muslims slash your tires? He says, because I'm telling people about Jesus. And they say, who's Jesus? And he says, by the time I get to that village, there's three, four, five new converts. And I tell the elders, I've been kicked out of this village. This is a church. You're the pastors. Keep going. That was seven years ago. He's, he's slowed down. He's only planting four churches at a time right now. But he's still going. He knows what it's like to suffer in the workplace. He knows what it's like to suffer for the name of Christ. You see, in the same way that, that Christ suffered for Christian, Christian suffers for the name of Christ. And so our calling is, is the same, and, and I'm sure most of us here aren't planting six churches at a time. But I'm sure most of us interact with people. And Christ's call on our lives is to proclaim his name, even if that means suffering for doing so. That's what he's called us to do. It's the example that he set before us. Next, we see that, that Christ, he not only suffered selflessly, but he suffered righteously. That is, he still did what was right, even while suffering. Therefore, we are to do what is right, even in the midst of our own suffering. In verse 22, Peter says, Christ committed no sin. Neither was deceit or treachery found in his mouth. When he was reviled or when they hurled insults at him, he did not revile in return. That is, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he did not even threaten retaliation. Or in other words, Christ suffered righteously. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to forget just how messed up Christ's trial really was. The gospel writers tell us there was no evidence against him. That they took him at night, kind of where no one else could watch this trial. They brought forward false witnesses who couldn't even agree on their testimony. That once they wrongly condemned him of death, that, that they then began to spit on him. That they blindfolded him and struck him and said, prophesy, tell us which of us hit you. That they then took him and beat him, all before he ever even went to a real trial with the Roman government. Christ's trial was a, a crooked, evil, unjust trial. False witnesses, statements that didn't agree, an illegal, unjustified beating just to mock him. And yet Peter says in the midst of this he committed no sin. I was thinking just this week, what? What could Christ have done during that beating? What could he have done during that trial? He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the creator of these people. He's already proven the, the winds and waves obey him. He's cast out demons. He's healed people. He's, he's proven he can do whatever he wants to do because he is God incarnate. And yet he bites his tongue. And maybe we could take a moment and consider what we could do to someone who's wronged us. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a, a place where you're being oppressed or, or persecuted or, or bullied or run around or, or just you have a rough boss and you, and you maybe even think all the things you could say. I've, I've had that moment. You think of all the things you could do to this person. And we look to Christ and we see him suffer righteously. And we hear him call us to do the same. Peter says in verse 18, be subject to our masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And look, look, people, people do some terrible things to other people, don't they? People in the workplace can be cutthroat. They can step all over you. The workplace can be an awful place sometimes, even in in Christian ministry. Thank God, not at this church, but I know there's, there's some ministries even where the workplace is just brutal. Add to that that Christianity is, is much less popular in America today than it's been in a long time. Unless you've been living under a rock the past few years, it's not hard to see that, that Christianity is under attack here in America today. We can expect to suffer in the workplace. We can expect to suffer for Christ's name. He calls us to do that Righteously, not perfectly. He doesn't expect perfection. He's gracious to us. But he expects us to be righteous in our suffering. Christ suffered selflessly. He suffered righteously. And then third, we see he suffered trustingly. That is, he trusted God the Father even while in the midst of terrible suffering. Right? Peter says in verse 23 that instead of sinning, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I was thinking this week about the amount of trust that Christ placed in the Father. Not just during his his life, but leading up to and during the crucifixion. He knew there would be an unjust trial. He knew he had a beating coming. He he knew he was headed for the cross. He was sweating drops of blood before, before being arrested. He asked the Father, if there's any way possible, let it be so. When it all came down to it, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is why Peter writes in verse 25 that that we who were like sheep going astray, we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Why does he say that? Because he's saying we once trusted in ourselves. We once lived for ourselves. We did whatever we felt like doing, but that wasn't working well. We were wandering. But now Christ, our good shepherd, he's called us to follow him, to trust him. And in the same way that that he suffered selflessly and and righteously and trusted the Father, we can trust him, the good shepherd, and overseer of our souls. So that's that's part one. That's that's Christ, our suffering Savior. That's the example set before us. And so here's what I want to do next. I want to look at a few clarifications to our calling. Because the unfortunate thing about this passage is it gets twisted. It gets twisted all throughout history. Clarifications to our our calling, just a few of them here. First, we are not always called to unchangeable suffering. We're not always called to unchangeable suffering. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, were you a slave when you were called to Christ? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. He says, if if you're in a a difficult situation and a, a better opportunity presents itself, it's okay 
for you to go into that better opportunity. God hasn't called us to unchangeable suffering. And sometimes we're, we're in a situation where we are suffering for Christ's sake, and then God in His goodness provides a way out, and, and it's okay to step into that next thing. You think about Christian. Would you condemn him for going to the next village because he's been run out of the first one? I mean, you're pretty bold if you do. And I encourage you to go to Albania and do that to his face. Because, no, he recognizes that he's been somewhere. He's had a calling to this village. He's been working. He's been proclaiming Christ. That door has been closed. And so now there's a new one for him to go to. And so he will literally pick the next village and he'll go there. And that's perfectly acceptable. You have the same spirit inside of you that Christian has inside of him. We have the same spirit inside of us that Peter and Paul have inside of them. And so it's perfectly okay while in the midst of suffering to see that God has provided something else and then to pray, to search the scriptures, to get godly counsel, and then at times to take that other thing. That's God's goodness to us. We're not always called to unchangeable suffering. If you're at a a job where you're being victimized or oppressed for Christ's name, it could be that God's providing something else for you. And it's not a sin to step into. Secondly, we are never called to fruitless suffering. We're never called to fruitless suffering. We might not always know why we are suffering the way we are, but we can always be assured that God is at work in our suffering. You think about Christ on the cross. Was that fruitless suffering? It was very fruitful suffering. We are the fruits of that suffering. Paul says in in Romans 5, speaking of us now, Christians, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. God always, always uses suffering for his glory and our greater good. Again, you think about Christian, there was fruit from his suffering every time. Every time. He might not know why they picked that week. He might not know why they wanted to come at him personally. But every time he would see fruit because people would ask about his suffering. He would say, it's because of Christ. They would say, who is Jesus Christ? And then there would be fruits from his suffering. Not to mention the fruit in him and his wife's life personally. It could be that in the workplace, it could be that in some some sphere of life, you're suffering, and it is just your endurance. It is just your ability to continue to do good while that's happening that brings about someone asking for the hope that is within you. And Peter says we should have an answer for that hope. And that answer is Jesus Christ. So not only does the suffering produce character and endurance and hope within us, but it gives us opportunities to explain to others about the one who is our hope. We are never called to fruitless suffering. And then, finally, we are no longer called to eternal suffering. I hope you understand your job is temporary. I wish, you know how some jobs they say temp on the front? I wish every job just said temp because it would be easier, wouldn't it? I mean, many of us, if you've ever been a temp, it's like you can't wait for the day when that that word temporary comes off the front. And, And then what happens, unfortunately, is we start to think, oh, well, this job is no longer temporary. All of our jobs are temporary. I mean, we've seen in the last season, it's very real. Death is very real. And, and death is usually fatal. 
but it's not eternal. It's not eternal. And if we're not in Christ, suffering is eternal. If we are in Christ, it's no longer eternal. I think about the the two thieves on each side of Christ as he's on the cross. You see, for the one who mocks Jesus, he's having the best moments of his life right there. That point as he mocks Christ, that's as good as it gets for him heading into eternity. And, and that's brutal to think about. But to the one who says to Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom, that temporary suffering is about to turn into eternal paradise. Today, Christ says, you will be with me in paradise. So no matter what we might be suffering here today, no matter what difficulties are weighing us down, no matter what we're going through, it's temporary. It's absolutely temporary. And for Christ's people, paradise is eternal. A place free from all suffering, a, a place where there are no more tears, there are no more weeping. That's what awaits us. Until then, we, we suffer well. We look to Christ as our example. We suffer for his name. We suffer while trying to do what's right. And we trust him, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, our example. We thank you, Lord, that you don't call us to something that you haven't done first. We thank you that that we can look to Christ through Peter's writing, that we can see that he suffered selflessly for us, that we can see his righteousness in the midst of suffering, that we can see him trusting you. And while we can see and understand that, Lord, like we said at the beginning, we we know that, that this is easier said than done. So we ask, Lord, even this week, this day, as we we head into, into life, into what awaits us for the week. Would you, would you help us to, to be a selfless people, to be a people who strive to be righteous in this world, who, who trust the shepherd and overseer of our souls? We thank you, God, that, that you don't always call us to unchangeable suffering. We, we thank you that you never call us to fruitless suffering, and we thank you that because of Christ, his righteousness applied to us, our sins being atoned for, that we are no longer destined for eternal suffering. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is suffering. I pray that you would provide, if if possible, another way. That they would pray and seek godly counsel in that, 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 Lord, that they would see the fruit that's being born in the suffering. That we would always be reminded that this world is temporary and paradise awaits. Lord, if there's anyone here who is does not have the assurance of eternal glory, would you draw them into your kingdom? Would you soften their heart? Would you fix their eyes on Jesus, the overseer of our souls? It's in his name we pray for his sake.